Throw this down for a catch. Uh, I don't have a quarrel with you, teacher. But we've been doing this all night. Nothing. Welcome to the Church in a Brewery podcast. This is the Chosen Retrospective Series, hosted by Nathan. Will you do us the honor, Rabbi? If that's where you keep the white sardines. Jason. Teacher, you have moved us all. John. Looks like we're not the only ones taxing the people. And Nick. It's the biggest pile of dung in all Capernaum. <laughs> Spoiler alert, we are literally gonna spoil everything. So make sure you've actually watched this episode before listening to this podcast. I'm on official business. Only Roman business is official business. Today we are discussing The Chosen, Season 1, Episode 2, directed by Dallas Jenkins. This is Nathan. This is Jason. John. This is Nick. We are four guys that just got together to watch and discuss every single one of these episodes in detail. We come from different backgrounds, so some of us have a church background, some of us are coming from a more non-religious background. thought it'd be really cool for us just to talk about our different perspectives and how the show speaks to us. I think that's fun. You can expect that we may have some different religious perspectives on this, but I think it'll make for a great conversation. So one of the things we're going to do this week is a giveaway. If you would like to be entered into a drawing for a $25 Visa gift card, you know, a lot of people need groceries or bills or something fun right now. All you have to do is share this podcast on social media. So either Facebook or Twitter, and then you hashtag it with hashtag church in a brewery podcast and tag one of your friends who you think might like it in the post. In two weeks on tax day, April 15th, when our next episode comes out, we'll announce the winner and we'll draw one random name from everybody who shared and hashtagged the podcast. So to recap, if you want to be entered into the drawing, share this podcast with the hashtag Church in a Brewery podcast and tag one of your friends in the post. Okay, so for you guys, uh, what kind of beer or whatever are you drinking tonight? I have a New Belgium 1554 Black Ale in this stylish superhero glass. What are you guys drinking? I got a, um, a dark English mild called Sparrow from in Kansas, a local brewery called Sand Hills. I'm actually Ooh. drinking it out of a four glass, another brewery from Bentonville, Arkansas. Awesome. I've never heard of that beer. That's cool. Good. If you like English mild. Okay. What about you, John? I'm going with uh, whiskey this evening from a local distillery, West Fork. This is a small batch called Indiana Gold. Pretty strong and has a uh, pretty strong taste of corn to it as well. So mm, you mean like cereal? Yeah. Better <laughs> that, that scotch you were drinking last week? Uh, it's not a smoky. It's uh, <laughs> this is more like uh, yeah, corn flakes. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> is that by Kellogg's by any chance? Kellogg's yeah, right. post, no, post. No shrimp tails in this though. So. <laughs> What about you, Nick? You are our master brewer on the podcast. What are you drinking? Uh, well, it's a it's a limited run. It's highly, highly sought after. It's from a brewery called Kroger. 
<laughs> Kroger brand water. It's zero uh, percent ABV. Wait, is no, that one uh, of those new non-alcoholic beers? <laughs> yes, it's so non-alcoholic. It's water. No, I always I, thought I, it was. It was pronounced Croger. It's French. Croger. Uh, gotcha. I love it. Seltzer. Yeah, new seltzer water without the seltzer. <laughs> Apple teeny, easy on the teeny. Apple teeny? I don't know what that is. Oh, it's from Scrubs. It's an old reference. So uh, after episode one, just to recap from last week, did you guys look up any of the questions, do any research after our last podcast discussion? I actually looked something up. We had a discussion about the name Lilith. So I was kind of curious about that. It's actually in Leviticus. It talks about she demon. Oh, that's cool. What, what did you learn? It was just making reference to the She-Demon. Actually, She-Demon was called Lilith. And so I thought that was interesting. That they called her that at the beginning, and she was possessed. Okay. I think John talked about maybe they were using other characters as reference for some of the characters. So I thought that was interesting. I came across something I'd never heard before, and I don't know if this is connected to it at all. But Lilith, apparently, in maybe Catholic lore, and I don't I don't know if this is what all Catholics believe, mm-hmm. But some believe that there was a first Eve named Lilith. It was like Adam's Mm. first wife. I know one guy at Brewery Church said that he believes Lilith gave Adam the apple. And then like they, I don't know, divorced or something. And then Eve is his second wife. So I don't know where that came from. I've never heard heard that too before. Yeah. You see that picture sometimes has Lilith with the apple. Yeah, I don't know if I repeated that correctly, but if, if you want to do a deep dive, you can look that up. It's interesting. Didn't Eve supposedly come from like one of the uh, ribs of Adam? Am I messing that yes. up? Mm-hmm. So was Adam a rib of Lilith? How did that come from? Yeah, <laughs> is this something that happened before then? And, it's and a chicken I don't and egg know, situation. Yeah, I don't know what book. Like if this is from one of those books that's not in the Bible, I have no idea. So you couldn't afford to give up any more ribs. That's what you land <laughs> You know, you you mentioned that, and I I came across, I don't know, maybe this is common knowledge, but the fact that there are books or or, uh, works of the Bible that aren't in the Bible, Mm -hmm. that just weren't included. Like Enoch and stuff? Yeah. And Apocrypha? Mind-blowing. Some of that stuff is really interesting. Yeah. So you're telling me if I sit down and read the Bible front to back, I'm still not done. I've got to go find the other non-included works? It depends. I mean... There's a podcast I listen to from a Bible historian. He says every Christian should read the book of Enoch. So he's a proponent of it. He doesn't think it is scripture, but he thinks everyone should read it. I don't know. I'm interested in it, but that's me. I'm, I'm into the weird stuff. <laughs> the way I figured it is the more written uh, evidence or examples of a story, the more likely it is to be rooted in some sort of historical accuracy, right? Yeah. Of course, I, I, I could be wrong. I don't know. Man, I haven't read it myself yet. So my understanding is it's like a mix of like it's got some history and some things that explain the Old Testament better, but it's also got some really wild stuff in there. I don't know. I'm going to have to read it myself and maybe then we could talk about it because that'd be kind of fun. So one of our questions last week was, is Mary Magdalene really a prostitute? And I think three of us at least looked that up like independently because we started sending articles around. What I found was Christianity.com and History.com both said she was not. It was added to the story hundreds of years later. And in 591 AD, Pope Gregory I 
preached that she was a prostitute and uh, he perpetuated that rumor and, you know, kind of gave it legs. He also said that the demons she was possessed with were the seven deadly sins. And that, that whole thing kind of bothered me because I was like, wait, you can't make stuff up, dude. <laughs> like, but uh, part of the reason that supposedly it's alleged that people started saying Mary Magdalene was a prostitute was because like women wanted to go into ministry and some of the male mm. church leaders didn't like that. So they started saying this to try to discredit the women, which is odd to me because even if she was a prostitute, it seems like it's still a powerful redemption story. So I, I can't 100% say if this was really made up to prevent women from entering ministry, but Christianity.com said that, and they said the church officially recanted that in 1400s, but the rumor was, you know, it had legs, so it lives on. So that kind of bothers me because I've been taught that and they didn't exactly say she was a prostitute in the show. She just lived in the red quarter. But I mean, as somebody who was possessed, I mean, I could see how they could end up there without being a prostitute, you know, end up in the bad part of town. So I don't I don't know what to think about it, but I make an exercise myself of like trying to trace things that I've heard back to the source. So I guess that could be a helpful exercise here. What what did you guys think about that whole Mary Magdalene prostitute thing? I've heard uh, that statement being perpetuated before as well. I don't necessarily believe or discount it. I don't know if we really know. And that's part of at least my interpretation of what I would consider to be the Bible is that there's gaps in these stories that we don't no, it's not stated definitively one way or the other. You know, she could be, she she may not be. I tend to lean towards it's a rumor that was passed on and has just kind of been integrated into the story over time. But at the end of the day, it's it's not specifically addressed in the New Testament or the modern New Testament. And I haven't seen anything that would contradict that. Um mm-hmm in my opinion. That's good, man. I, I kind of go along with you, kind of Nathan, a little bit. Actually, I think I'm the one who brought the question up. It was the academic level. We talk about the scripture. We look at it as actually put in place to mitigate the power of women. Mary Magdalene, that's the example they use as far as about women being in ministry. Look at Mary Magdalene. She's like never Jesus. Look at Mary Magdalene. So if we can kind of devalue who and, and her in some way. It is interesting. I know sometimes John brought a point up. It doesn't specifically say that she's a prostitute in scripture. Most Christians, I think, do believe prostitute no say it doesn't say that she's not either so then we're gonna roll with that argument from silence yeah i guess so that's good in there but i do like what you brought up i mean even if she was i mean that's a good um would you say a redemption story um, yeah i mean that does kind of i didn't really think about it that way but it's never good personally even if she was it's even more powerful so i i don't think it would bother me if she was it would bother me if people just like decided hey let's soil this person's reputation i'm like Come on, man. Like, isn't that kind of uh why do we think people need to be perfect or something? You know, but I've been trying to verify something I looked up. But Ooh. so when I was going down this rabbit hole about uh you know Mary Magdalene, you mentioned the uh was a apoth uh Korea. Yeah, well, I was even close. And the book of Enoch. Well, I stumbled across uh, something called the first council of Nicaea. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with it, yeah. 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 I went to a deep I mean, the modern day canon. That's where the modern day Bible comes from, from that. Yeah. So that's the thing, right? So these are the guys, or I'm just saying individuals, because maybe they're more women, doubtful, who decided, you know, what stories made of the Bible. Well, maybe during this 
committee council meeting, maybe they decided that she would be a prostitute then. I don't know. Probably not. I don't know. We, we should go back and read like when the rumors started, because I know it didn't take off until close to 600, but it probably existed before. I don't know when it first emerged. Well, actually, he mentioned the council of Nicaea. There's some actual, let's go back and read it, backlash on the council of Nicaea actually trying to make sure that women did not have a prominent spot in Eddie. Hmm. You know, like I said, the modern day Canaan was actually coming from that. What, what was it Christian or not? They'll kind of roll with that still today. I mean, Catholics, Protestants still get a lot of what they use from that council. Yeah. I've seen both churches that have the perspective that women can't, you know, do all the things men can do. And then I've seen other churches who think that they can. So it's interesting that there's still a divide there among some religious people today. I think uh, we should go ahead and go into the plot because the whole women thing, I think, is a prominent theme in this episode. So I'll read the plot and then we'll basically roll right into the same discussion about like women and their role and stuff. So let me see if I can find my plot summary here, which I pulled from, again, Patheos.com. Nick sent me a plot summary of the first one, so I thought... Yeah, I'll just use it again for the second one. Oh, oh, one more quick fact. The opening scripture of episode one was from Isaiah, right? Well, I got this study guide. Someone at church gave me one that whoever produced the chosen, the group, they put together this little study guide. So I started reading some of it just to see what it said. They said Isaiah was sawed in half by King Manasseh. I looked it up and uh, it is in uh, the Jewish Talmud. There's a non-canonical book called The Ascension of Isaiah. I have no idea what's in that. There's a reference to it in Hebrews. So like the king didn't like what this guy was saying. So he sawed him in half. That is kind of creepy, but that's who wrote that opening scripture, fear not, you know, you are mine. I thought that was interesting. Little did he know what awaited Exactly. We might have had more fear. Right. (laughs) Trying to make him be afraid. (laughs) Okay, so here's a plot summary of episode two, Shabbat. The newly exercised Mary Magdalene gets ready to host her first Shabbat dinner in a long, long time. Matthew tells the praetor Quintus that Simon might be lying to the Romans about his ability to help catch the merchants who are dodging their taxes. Nicodemus learns that Mary is no longer possessed and asks her who cast out the demons, but she doesn't know. Jesus shows up unannounced at Mary's house for Shabbat dinner, along with two of his disciples, one whom looks mysteriously like Adam Sandler. I inserted that part myself. Seriously, you should go back and look. It looks like Adam Sandler. (laughs) Jesus shows up uh, unannounced, and uh, Mary Nicodemus, Andrew, and the other hosts have very different Shabbat dinners, while Matthew eats alone, sort of, because there's a dog there too. The episode ends with Simon standing by the shore of Galilee as several Roman soldiers approach. All right, so that's the plot summary. In the opening scene, we see a Shabbat dinner at what looks like an Israeli camp, and a man stands up and begins to read this poem or reading that will be read at the other Shabbat dinners later in the episode, and it starts off, a woman of valor, who can find her? And then they go on to recite a list of prominent women in their lineage, basically like famous women. This speech was probably taken from Proverbs 31. I read that and it it looks to me like it's written off of that proverb. So, all right, we're starting off with they're elevating women. And I thought that was very interesting because 
there's a big debate about whether or not religion suppresses women and prevents them from doing things or whether or not it honors them. And this show, I almost wonder if this is a response to that criticism. They're going to honor women right off the bat. So what do you guys think about that? Right off the bat, we mentioned this from episode one, that Nicodemus' wife, multiple times in episode one, she spoke to him as an equal. And in certain times, I feel like she even gave him guidance or counsel. And I, I believe that during that time, especially with them being religious uh, individuals, that sort of interaction, no way is that possible. And then you roll into this episode, she's still talking in the same way. And, 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 you know, you see, you know, Mary's in the beginning talking with her friends, or I guess they are talking about setting up Shabbat, the dinner, and, and again, just giving her guidance and support. And so I don't think this is very indicative of how the actual times were, but I'm okay with, I'm okay with the way it shows it. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's my thoughts. I disagree a little bit in terms of I do think conversations and interactions like that took place in that time, but I think it was confined to the specific situation. Um, so if we're you know referencing back to episode one and Nicodemus's wife, and even in episode two, their interaction there, it was in the confines of their own chamber. It wasn't in public. It wasn't a public setting. It was a husband and wife conversation that was taking place. And I think there's examples of that throughout that reaffirm that those interactions happen. Maybe it didn't happen in that exact way, but husbands and wives definitely had conversations, picked each other up. Mm -hmm. They redirected each other. They focused each other when it was needed, but it was done in private. It was never a public matter. I think it would have been very different had it been, you know, if they're out on the market shopping and uh, she chastises him in in front of a bunch of his peers, that would have been a different situation. Didn't that kind of happen though? When Nicodemus walked up on Mary and he was like, Lilith. And she's like, nah, man, I'm Mary. And he's like, I, you know, he's basically the, 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 summary is I, I healed you and she's like no you didn't somebody else but it was a very candid they were speaking like equals even to the point where he was like look i am a pharisee and she's like oh shoot i gotta put my my little hat on so i, I mean I, I feel like that that was very public and mm. i don't think she gave him lip per se if you i don't know how to say that directly but she definitely that's, confronted him that's so a different conversation than a husband and wife having kind of a back and forth banter like um, Eden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this discussion that I'm referencing happened in the market, out, out in public. Mm-hmm. I, was thinking, I was thinking that case there when Nicodemus, he addressed her, he came up, who's just responding back. He noticed when he mentions that he's Pharisees, her tone kind of changes like, oh no. And she kind of, I need to you know, cover up and all that. So she kind of, the different tone, addressed the opening scene. The way I looked at it is there's a couple couple themes that got the opening scene. I'm going to compare it kind of to the last scene. I think we look at women are part of society. I mean, they're the ones actually preparing the meal. They're kind of important. We even see that today. I mean, women do play a critical role when it comes to everyday life and some of these holidays. One thing I noticed, though, is I felt like the Jewish people actually liked each other and they're more equal in the beginning when they had the first meal. They kind of loved each other. When you get towards the end, I start seeing they do take away some of that importance of women. Even though women are the ones still providing the meal, even Nicodemus' wife actually, I think, prepared a lot of that meal. It also looks like they've set themselves up into a hierarchy where they almost not equal 
point anymore. They almost like dislike each other. Or they're kind of afraid of each other. And when you look at the scene when Jesus comes in at the end, he does. When he says, you want to pray, pray. He said, no, this is your home. You pray. He kind of gives the power back to her a little bit like it was in the beginning is what you see. So I think there's a couple themes there that you see when you compare and contrast those two. And I think that's what they were trying to do is compare the beginning with the end. Man, I didn't catch that before, but now I can see it. Like maybe that opening scene is showing us the ideal because that family, that group is together. Yeah, it's almost showing you what the ideal is so that you can identify it later. And they're very different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree with Jason and on a lot of his points there in terms of that contrast between the two. The one with Nicodemus is more about prominence in terms of the people attending. I, I, I think one of the characters was even whispered to his counterpart that, hey, make sure we get a seat at the head of the table or near the head of the table to where you contrast that to Mary's and it's more wholesome in a lot of ways. You look at the group that Mary has coming. I mean, she's not picking the better part of society. She's just getting kind of what you would think you'd pull in. Yeah, forget about Matthew. I mean, Matthew's there by himself. I mean, nobody, there's no forgiveness for this guy, even though he he wants to be, I mean, he has his own little bowl where he is. He wants to participate. Yeah. It's kind of a little, little, little different. There's no forgiveness for him. So There's a whole different though, little discussion to have about Matthew, though. I mean, <laughs> I mean he'd probably be I, a difficult dude. Well, not, not just that, but you say forgiveness, but did they ever come out and say why him and his father were not close? He's a tax collector. Well, so I wondered about that. So there's that, but also, well, I was watching this with Liz, my wife, and she raised a good point. It's, I think, at this point, clear to say Matthew is autistic or Asperger's. He is something, and they are clearly showing us that, right? And at that time, if you were you know, some sort of mental health issue, you were disowned, you were cast out. So, I mean, that's part of. I mean, that could be part of the reason too. Is he's he's like my father says he has no son. Well, yeah, because I have mental health, and you cast me out. On the flip side, Mary has this one of the guys. One of the guys that she invites blind or something. That lady something is wrong with him. The, yeah, has what? So he's so kind of welcomed. Yeah, stands there. Question on the story, though, also with regards to who comes to her dinner. I don't know. How did that happen? Who decided or how, when did she invite these people? I think she only invited like a couple of them. James and Thaddeus. Adam Sandler is James, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, they just show up. I think Jesus sent them there. So I'm starting to wonder if there's some kind of symbolism with strangers being at the table, mm. like people you don't know. So I thought that was interesting, but she yeah. probably invited, did she invite the blind lady and Barnaby? Yes. Yeah. Jesus yeah. kind of invited himself. I love how she doesn't really know the tradition very well. Cause okay. We asked last week, we thought, okay, was she a practicing Jew or how serious was she about her religion? I think we got that answer. Cause she doesn't know the difference between the Passover and the Shabbat. Neither did I till I watched this episode twice, but because I thought that last dinner was a Passover dinner at first. I get the sense that it'd been a long time since she'd really been practicing her religion. I think it's cool that, you know, everybody's okay with it if she doesn't really know what she's doing or doesn't do it quite right. And that's the dinner that Jesus went to. When Nicodemus does his dinner, he knows the very first one at the beginning. And even when when Mary does her, it's more about the Jews as a whole and doing all these ceremonies and stuff. But when Nicodemus has his, they start talking about all these souvenirs and relics. Like, I bet this has been in my family for all this time. And so he more or less changes the focus from the Jews as a whole to 
his family, or at least his wife does. Or he, and so I think that was interesting. Yeah, there's like this whole thing about like gold plates and they had to be baked in the sun like multiple times. And I mean, it took forever. And I, I caught that because it's almost whispered. Did you guys catch that? Yeah, it kind of reminded me of, you know, some parables in terms of offerings. And, you know, you have a, a rich person that gives a certain percentage you know, in terms of tithing and this very poor person that has two coins that donates those. And the difference there is the effort and what that sacrifice and that meaning is to that individual. That was kind of uh, something that I took away from those two scenes or two different dinners. You have one person who doesn't really know what they're doing, kind of has a rough idea, but she's trying really, really hard and has her heart in it. And another group that it's more of a status symbol, they're kind of going through the motions where they're not as engaged or their heart's not really in the right place at the right time. Yeah. What if you inserted Mary into the dinner for the religious leaders? What if she was facilitating that? Like, would they accept her? No. They almost don't even seem to want to be at that dinner. Nicodemus didn't want to go. And you're right. It is more about the stuff than the people. So I don't know if that's something we're supposed to contrast. That's actually a good point there. I mean, almost like Nicodemus doesn't want to be there. His wife's like, come on, you gotta go see these people. I mean, make a good point there. I didn't really catch that, but yeah, you're right. Well, keep in mind, Nicodemus just got told that he, you know, this episode starts off with him being told he he did this miraculously awesome thing, which, by the way, when he goes up and they're like, there's going to be a formal inquiry. And he's like, wait, what are the charges? What did I do wrong? I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> but they're like, no, 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 it's, it's, it's a miracle. But anyway, all that to say, I think he didn't want to go at the end because he's still like his mind's blown. Whether maybe his ego's hurt or whatever. He, here he, he thought he cured this lady and she's like, nope, this guy that. I can't tell you his name. You know, no, I think you bring a point up when you talk about Nicodemus and just thought about it. Going to the court, he got the teacher of teachers and he gets to the court. He's almost a little, he's like, what's the charges? Like, he's a little bit fearful. And I told yeah. you maybe the power that the, the court does have at that time frame. I didn't catch that. I think you're probably right. Or I what's keep... he done wrong that he's scared that mm-hmm. you know, he's like, what's the wrong, you're not scared. Like, what's yeah. going on here? And so, so. I was going to say something else that I found kind of interesting. I don't know if everyone watched with subtitles after the first episode. I was like, okay, subtitles are going on. I'm, I'm going to pick up on some <laughs> of this. Did anybody else notice how when Mary and Nicodemus were interacting, when she would reference Jesus, she didn't know his name, but he, his, they were capitalized, denoting that, you know, symbolism of respect and uh, dignity towards him, even though she didn't know who he was. I I thought that was kind of cool. I, I, I caught that in the second time. It was the first time I was like, oh, look, great. Our subtitles are jacked up. Go figure. <laughs> nope. Actually, I thought they were jacked up, but you just mentioned it. You're right. You're right. Every, every time he, his, him. Yeah, it, it was. Capitalized. And that's how it is in the Bible, too, right? Depends which version you read, but a lot of the time. Okay. Yeah. Some to the point that even the words he says are different colors or something, right? Red. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First time I saw a red text in a Bible, I thought it was like the, the marked up version or something. Someone wrote this with blood. Yeah. No, no, no. That's when Jesus speaks or God speaks. Oh, oops. Sorry. So I, I use that yeah. reference a lot. When, when, when people use the Bible, I'll say that's not right. Or that's not what the Bible said. And I was like, in the red part, the part that Jesus actually said. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's funny. If you carry over one of the last scenes of Nicodemus from the previous episode, remember he's talking about like, I don't want to go to this meeting with these religious leaders. I don't want to perform. And he starts like kind of making a fake performance and he's just kind of sick of it. So if you carry that over into this episode, he's still there and he's having the doubts about his faith. He's kind of sick of performing, walks into that dinner. There's basically like one of the other religious leaders, Shmuel or whatever his name is. This guy like says an almost Jerry Maguire statement, like, Rabbi, you make us whole, like a, you complete me. And he's like, only God can do that. But I'm picking up on a thread here about legalism and corruption with religious leaders. I'm pretty impressed with the show by bringing that conversation up. I think that you have to, if you're going to really tell the story of Jesus. I'm impressed that, I mean, this is made by like a Christian church and stuff. I'm impressed that they would address that. I think it's a big relevant issue. What did you guys think about that? I agree. I, I think it added a level of realism to the time period, just in terms of how people would interact with these religious leaders or the elite of that community. Again, you had different classes, you had different sects that were all interacting at the same time. And we see some of that in terms of the Romans with the Jews and the Jews with the Pharisees and, and how all of that creates this environment. That scene in particular in the the portion you're referencing definitely, I, I think, at least in my mind, kind of reiterated some of the things I remember in terms of, again, it's about grandeur. It's about status. It's about elevating yourself within your group. And that, that really reinforced that point. Do you think it's a commentary on modern times or do you just think it was a problem then, it's a problem now? I think it's more of a, it, it was a problem then and it always will be. Humans. You, you think that as, um, I learned a new term a couple of weeks ago at that brewery church that was called prosperity. Prosperity. Prosperity gospel. There you go, that right there. And so I'm, I'm not necessarily thinking like Joel Steen and those types, you know, are they really religious or this put on a good show? They can have millions of dollars. And I get this vibe a little bit Nicodemus. I'm not saying he's just a non-believer, but he's doing a lot of things just to keep himself in that in that hierarchy. And I think the Pharisees kind of does that. They do these things to keep in the upper class. I think that's the theme now. You look at modern day Christianity, you know, I think I mean, just that study we looked at sort of the other day where you got less than half the population identifies with Christian group. And I think the problem is, if they look at it, is corruption. These mm -hmm. groups are, are just taking our money. They're just, you know, using the system to keep themselves up on top. And they've created this hierarchy that doesn't necessarily need to be there. And if you look at the way I read the scriptures, Jesus is opposed to that. He makes mm -hmm. it quite clear. We've almost went back again, you know, full circle back to where we were at the beginning. If you look at what the movie is or the show series is kind of, I think, pulling up some of these themes that need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were these different groups back then, like a, a set of religious leaders that are very legalistic. And then maybe you've got your prosperity gospel, which I think Nicodemus kind of says some prosperity gospel-ish things at that last dinner in episode one, because he says like, we know if you follow God's law perfectly, he will bless you or something. Well, I know people... Well, I've heard people say 
you know, over the last 10 years, look, if you just do what God says, he'll give you a lot of money. He'll make your business successful. And like, I certainly think there are good business principles in the Bible, but like, what about somebody who's like handicapped? Like, are you saying God doesn't love them? Or I know people who I'm pretty sure are some of the best people I know and they love God and they're not millionaires or they're going through hard times. So like, what does that kind of thinking do to a person? And I think we haven't seen Nicodemus's full arc yet, but I think he's wrestling with whether or not that mentality is true. I mean, if you look at it, like which dinner did Jesus go to? And I think that is busting that whole prosperity gospel, you know, mentality in a way. You got a you got a blind lady at this dinner and he's there and another lady who doesn't know how to do this. Like she hasn't even been following the Jewish law for years. So, you know, that that's who he wants to spend time with. I think that kind of puts some cracks in prosperity gospel. On a a simpler view of the same thing though. You know, if you look back through this episode, episode two. There's the scene where Nicodemus is, he's sitting and he's reading. And, and if you had the subtitles on, or maybe it wasn't the oh, subtitles, yeah. it, says, it said the demons and, and whatever. And to mm-hmm. me, that was him trying to understand, like, okay, I, I don't remember if that occurred before or after he, he went and talk, spoke with Mary. But regardless, it's either him trying to figure out, like, what in the world, what did I do wrong, or you know, what did I do right? But you know, see, so you say, I think you mentioned earlier that he's kind of wrestling with his beliefs. And that's, that's where I think about that. I think he may still have a pure thread in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he may not still, he may not be completely, you know, a, a part of the dark side with you know, the prosperity gospel, but um, it's, it's it, he definitely is trying to figure something out. And I think that's what they're showing. And maybe I'm reading too much into that, but I, that's what I'm, that's what I saw. No, I got the same thing. And I think you're right there. Like he doesn't have everything wrong. Everything that he believes is not wrong. The same for all of us. I probably have some stuff wrong. Um, You know, I mean, I I just know that's the reality of being human is that like we don't have perfect knowledge. So I think he's he's probably uncovering a big hole in his theology or something. It's being challenged, which can be a healthy thing. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. Now that we got to see a little bit of Matthew and Quintus, what do you guys think about them? I I thought that scene was hilarious. (laughs) Just for a reminder, Quintus is the who he went to see, right? Yes. Yeah. The guy that could have potentially killed him. Again, another instance of someone recognizing that Matthew's got something up. <laughs> I mean, what what's he he says something like uh basically he loses the fact that, like you do not know my power or something like you stand up to me and he's like, Yeah, I'm standing. He's like, Oh man. <laughs> I didn't like, catch that. You, That's like a pun. Yeah. I got some issues with that scene, not necessarily Matthew, but are other Romans really that terrified of Quintus? I mean, anything I've read in Roman history doesn't say that. They're a unit. They're all kind of together. And it's like, oh, crap, don't mess with Quintus. He's going to go on this killing spree. You know, I could see being terrified because he's not Roman, but I just don't see. I mean, you see, it's like they're all terrified. I mean, let's not talk to Quintus. Let's not disturb him. Don't think that's the case. I mean, I don't know. One of the things I found interesting was that the use of the terms dominus and praetor in terms of, and typically you don't, I haven't personally, and again, I don't know a lot about Roman culture. I, I know enough to make me dangerous, but in my understanding, dominus is more of an ownership term uh, in terms of an owner of a slave or property. And then I, I had to go look up what praetor was. And it, basically I came with, you know, it's a fairly high-ranking Roman official. 
So I could see to some degree there being a chain of command or a level of respect, but I, I thought the usage of those two terms in that scene was fairly interesting in terms of how at some points there was the reference to Dominus and then other points it was more of a peer like Jason is saying, where it's a, I'm acknowledging the chain of command, your status, and I'm calling you Praetor, not Dominus. And that's a good catch. I didn't think about that. 40 years from now, the Romans are going to destroy that temple and they're going to basically kill all the Jews. So is that that's the, yeah, in 70 AD, that's the Jewish Roman war. I can see that this, this leads to a war. So I don't know if they found something historic about their relationship in the 30s, you know, or if they're just kind of projecting back that, okay, this relationship between the Romans and the Jews must be hostile to lead to a war in 40 years. I don't know. If you look at, I mean, the reason I think that is, I mean, this is going by some history books, those people never accepted the Romans as control of that area. So they fought them over and over and over and over again. I mean, some of the first acts of terrorism were Jewish people onto the Romans. By the time oh, you get wow. to the 70s, and one thing that the Romans did a lot of times is they would jump in and they would destroy your idols or your religious leaders. When it comes to the Jews, there's no statues. It's an actual invisible being. By the time you get to the 70 AD, Romans just had it enough. And they said, we're, we're tired of you. This is leave. We're going to destroy your stuff. That was kind of when you, you kind of get to that point, they just harassed them so much. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you think it was more of like a equally antagonistic relationship than uh, than being so afraid of Quintus, like walk on eggshells. When it comes thing. to the, I don't think the Romans are that afraid of them. I think the Jewish population looked at them as these are the people that are trying to dominate us. These are the conquerors. We're not happy mm-hmm. about this. We're not going to submit. And the Romans looked at it as we're the conquerors. Submit, or we're just going to start killing y'all. So I mean, it's it, it's re- uh, reiterated in the market scene. Where Gaius comes in, he sees a Roman soldier struggling to keep control over a, it looks like a some sort of fight or confrontation between two Jews. And he comes in and just uses the pummel of his sword and, you know, knocks a guy out. And he chastises the Roman soldier, too, for not. Exactly. Him. Exactly. Don't you think it's crazy how, like, Gaius clubs a guy with a sword. And then in the very next scene, he's talking to Matthew and he's like, how could you not have a relationship with your own father? Like this coming from the guy who just clubbed someone over the head. He was raised differently. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's what probably that comes down to. And did he, did he, did he wet himself? Is that what they showed us? Dude, that's what I was wondering. Uh, <laughs> wet himself? I, I, I wonder you. if he like pooped his oh. pants or something. Cause he's cleaning he's like, something disgust- off. Yeah. He's like, you're disgusting or whatever. It's like, what? what? Because of that comment, I was like, is this not just like dirt or blood or something? So, yeah. okay. So I asked a group at church, I asked them like, Hey, uh, what was Matthew cleaning off of his uh, clothes? They said dirt. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm not going to say what I think it might've been. <laughs> yeah. What he possibly stepped in uh, the first episode, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> gotta have your, uh, where, where are his extra pairs of robes? I mean, for consistency's sake. It's kind of like a hundred of those hidden somewhere. I, I think once we get a look at Matthew, why is, um, let me just be realistic. I mean, Matthew's selling out his own people to the Romans. I mean, why is he so hell-bent on you know, checking and getting people in trouble that like he's going to go all the way up to the, to the pre- prefect and you know, I got to double-check this and make sure this is all right. And 
it just seems like an odd relationship. That is like almost like a like allowed. Sticking mm-hmm. with the autism approach, man. I was just gonna say it's it's just what he knows. He's been told to do X, and that's what he's gonna do. Even if he is selling out his own people, he's doing what he he believes is right. That, that's that's the way I see it. I mean, that's why when when Quintus you know is like trying to intimidate him, he's just like, I am standing. I'm standing right here. I I'm standing up to you because I'm standing here talking to you. We could say black and white. You know, he was just going against his people, or he just didn't know. Probably both storylines are right. I think, John, you and I probably knew people in high school who were like very by the book. Like they're not in a position of authority, but they're going to go around and police the rules. Absolutely. I don't know if it's because their parents were hard on them or I don't know what the deal was, but I can take Matthew seriously as he is because I've known people who like, oh, you're breaking the rule and like they've got to like police it. It's black and white. To a T. Maybe it comes with the autism. I don't know. And that's, again, to say that it's autism, I, I think, stretch, there's, I don't think that's anything that can be definitively proven. But, right. um, you know, I, I am in complete agreement with you. And that was part of my notes prepping for this is that I, I definitely know people that are like that, that have that caliber of morality in terms of what's right and wrong in their minds. That's how they operate. Those are the confines that they have to operate in. And if they don't, that's a violation of their own conscience that would bother them way more than putting their life at risk, addressing an issue or what they would perceive as an issue. You know, at the end of the day, the truth is the ultimate gold standard and anything else is non-worthy. That's kind of why I saw it. They need to have order for like security purposes. So everybody else needs to follow the rules so that they can see that the world is like a stable place. To an extent. Yeah. At the same time, I I also think Matthew being a tax collector, this gets back to my, some of my issues with how he's portrayed in this series. He's a hated individual just because of his profession alone, let alone him having these standards where I'm going to go to the Romans and now even rat you out even more after I've tried to take your money ready. His home isn't guarded. You know, it's him alone. People know where he's at. He has Mm -hmm. to be able to interact on a day to day. And that's where I, I just have a problem with him being portrayed as a weak or feeble individual. Maybe not a lot of street smarts, but I, I don't see him being the type of person that would be weak or feeble and surviving in that position or that job at that time. I agree with John. I think we talked about that last time, last week, or when we talked before. You know, I don't think this tax collector is going to be that weak or feeble either. I mean, I think he's going to be... We don't like tax collectors now, but I think the guy is just trying to do his job. I mean, here's the job I'm getting paid. I'm going to do it. I know people ain't really going to like me, but that makes sense. I think they've been overboard on this on this character a little bit. I mean, nobody likes to pay taxes, not even now. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you see the IRS, and we're like, oh, shoot. I mean, <laughs> more people are scared of the IRS than they are of God. I mean, it's kind of... Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it's... If they send me something yeah, in the mail, like, my heart skips a beat. Well. <laughs> <laughs> A few scenes later, or maybe this was before then, I can't remember, but Nicodemus finds Mary Magdalene in the marketplace. And uh, one of the things that stuck out to me goes along with his arc again is he's surprised that someone healed her and is not seeking credit. So he actually says like, he performs miracles and seeks no credit. Like, who is this man? Isn't that strange? Because I think to this point, 
I mean, weren't they kind of taught, like, don't flaunt the things that you do? Humility was a big deal back then. It was a big part of Jesus's teachings, but I think it was actually already set in the Bible before that. So it's interesting that like their culture had come to the place where it's shocking that there would be someone who doesn't want to take credit for these miracles. Isn't that interesting? That plays along with your prosperity gospel, right? Yeah. You think Nicodemus would have, I could have been bashing this character a little bit, but I think if he was the one who exercised her, I'm not, I don't think he'd be out bragging. Look what I did, look what I did, look what I did. It was just kind of routine. I'm not sure yeah. that some of the other Pharisees would be that humble about it. I think you're right, because I think he's a conflicted character. He's caught in this legalistic system, but I think there's a good part of him, and he's kind of trying to decide. Uh, he's trying to work some things out. He's like Darth Vader at the end of Return of the Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> when you go to that later scene where he's talking with his wife at the dinner, you know, he, he talks about the Maccabee revolt 200 years before where his people's worship was suppressed. And then he says, who suppresses our worship now? I don't know if he's talking about like the religious leaders, the Romans, or himself. I I thought that sentence is very telling, though. Like, it's as telling about where he's at as the uh, the previous sentence, like he performs miracles and sees no credit. So what, what do you think about that whole like suppression of his worship type thing? Who's he talking about? What's he talking about? Is that going on right now? I kind of took it as a dab at modern day Christianity. I mean, instead of being suppressed, but realistically, the Romans are letting the Jewish population practice their faith as long as they don't have any problems. Look mm-hmm. at today, that's a common theme also with being suppressed and being persecuted when they're not. It does a good job of it to mobilize people. Oh, I kind of took that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. I'm enjoying the whole conversation about religion and like what is healthy religion and what isn't. Like I'm enjoying it in the show and I'm impressed by it. And I get a front row seat to that right now because like I told you guys, I work part time at a regular church. I do music there. I enjoy it there. They're, they're really good to me. The other half of my job, I do this brewery church. It's a church and a brewery discussion group that Jason goes to. And I'm pretty sure, Jason, you've seen whenever I run event ads, the people that get on there and just blast us are Christians. Isn't that surprising? They'll get on there and they'll quote scripture and tell people that we're like carting people to hell in a wheelbarrow. And I think, what are you doing, man? Like, I'm just trying to get people together to talk about Jesus. Like, what's the problem? And so I resonate with this whole like conversation in The Chosen about some problems with religion and the legalism and stuff, because I feel like I'm kind of living through that a little bit. I, I agree. I look, at, I look at some of the comments. I don't engage in that. I'm thinking I've got better things to do and have these discussions with these Christians. Quote, I think they're probably brutal and nasty. I mean, they're a lot more brutal and nasty than people that are actually against Christianity. It is kind of sad a little bit. Yeah, they're, they're probably scaring people <laughs> like... I got friends that don't want to be Christian because they see stuff like that. And that's what makes me sad. I know they're not all like that. Well, I'm a Christian, so. I think part of that gets back to the discussion of which dinner did Jesus attend? Yes. You know, was it the one that was staunch and should have been rooted in scripture and to a T? Or was it the one where the heart and the mind was in the right place? We're making an effort. We're trying to get from point A to point B and really putting our all into this rather than performing or a show. That's a big distinguishing factor. And I I think that's, you know, like you said, a a big turnoff for people 
in, in terms of trying to have conversations and explore reason that you have almost elitists that push a narrative and it's like, okay, well, you can still have that opinion. You don't have to be disrespectful or treat people disrespectfully. Have a conversation. Let's talk mm-hmm. about it. When you went to the dinner, I, something I noticed is Jesus comes in and somebody says, this is my rabbi or this is guy's been teaching me. And then she's like, oh, hey, rabbi, do you want to do the prayer? She tried to elevate him. Mm-hmm. He didn't. He just sat down like a regular person. He's like, no, this is your home. You do the prayer. I love he was it. just happy. It's, he's got totally a different approach to mm-hmm. he's not trying to shove the religion down people's throats. He's just like, I'm there if I'm, if I'm available or if you need help. And I will mm-hmm. assist you. Could have phrased it a little better, but you kind of see what I'm going with with that one. Yeah, and it, it's interesting, too, because like the famous male teacher comes in the room and the woman has the place of honor leading that dinner. I don't know culturally what would be like in that situation, but I think it's an interesting statement for right now. We lose Nick. Yeah, I, I just sent him a message. It sounds like his battery has died. He's struggling to reconnect right now. Okay. okay. I was going to see if... that John's like got notes and he's prepping and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did take some notes this time around just because again, like he's, both of you have, have stated there's so much there like little intricacies that you can pick apart and go down a rabbit hole with mm-hmm. like that and i think that's really cool about this series and what makes it interesting and for a good conversation yeah i agree i think this was really the writers of this really thought this out real well we have these different angles where we're sitting here i mean everybody's bringing something new to the table that nobody else saw I personally thought the second one was better than the first one. I thought it was a little bit more engaging, a little bit more kind of going on. I think a little more intrigued with the second one than the first one. Mm -hmm. I had a similar impression of it. And I know Nathan and I talked a little bit before this call that um, part of what made this more enjoyable for me this time around is I knew what I was getting into. I knew I had to kind of set aside some biases and just see it for what it was, where they're trying to go with it and not try to analyze it too much as far as a interpretation versus biblical references. It made it a lot more enjoyable. <laughs> and uh, this episode in particular, again, there's a lot in there that is just we don't know. <laughs> you know, we we don't know how those actions would have gone, but it, it's entertaining and it, it provokes a, a conversation. Mm-hmm. I think I think when I'm watching these, I'm probably being a little bit more um, analytical, knowing that hey, I got this podcast, I got to have something to talk about, <laughs> and so I'm kind of like a little bit more. <laughs> I don't want to be sitting there the whole time not saying anything. But I think I'm I'm really kind of thinking about it and analyzing. I think you guys are too. I mean, John's taking notes. I mean, thinking about the themes and the topics and kind of what's what's going to happen there. I'm really enjoying it. And like you guys said, I think they've really thought this out. I think they're addressing issues that are relevant now. Like, you know, they they didn't have to bring the women's place of honor into it to the extent that they did. But I think they did it because that's where we're at in society today. Like a lot of people think religion held people back. And I don't really know the answer necessarily. I think this episode is showing 
it's not intended to. Like if religion is implemented correctly, women would have a place of honor or an equal place. But, you know, I, I, so I don't know if way back in the Old Testament, if it was the culture, because I, I've read about the culture in other places outside of Israel, and they were having the same problem, like suppressing women and things like that. And then I've, I've listened to, you know, some, this is going to be a controversial view, but in uh, the Old Testament, those statements and Deuteronomy, where they gave women a certificate of divorce. Well, I've heard podcasts talking about what the times were like back then, where they gave them that certificate to give women freedom, because sometimes a guy would just leave and a woman can't remarry. She can't, you know, she doesn't have any way to make money. She can't acquire property. So the only way she has for hope in the future is if she could actually get that certificate of divorce and remarry because of the system she was in. But it's like, is the system bad for women because of religion or were all ancient cultures in that area like that? Because I'm starting to entertain the possibility that ancient Israel was trying to introduce women's rights and it took an awful long time, but like they may not have been doing any worse than the other countries around them. And now I, this episode is piggybacking on that saying, hey, this is the intention. It hasn't always been carried out well, but this is what the intention is for family, for women's place and, and their freedom, things like that. So I'm going to give this episode major props for tackling a theme like that, because some people will watch this episode and they'll love that. It will speak to, to something that they've had a problem with religion about. Other people might watch it and feel, I don't know, a little upset because they don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. So for people in that boat, I, I would encourage you to go back and, and look at you know some of that Old Testament stuff and learn about the culture and just figure out if this show is right about what they're saying. I think that's an academic debate there, an interesting debate. We even see that just with any but other religions like Islam, you know, was some of these practices stuff in place before the religion got there, or is it the religion that's actually doing it? I mean, it's interesting debate there or discussion. I actually had a, a similar conversation with a coworker about this exact topic. And again, comparatively to other major religions at that time in, in, in the area, I think there was a lot of progressivism that was taking place in terms of Judaism uh, leading up from the Old Testament at that transition to the New Testament to where there was a path being set forth. And it wouldn't be you know, what we would consider equal rights today, per se. But in that time period, there were a lot of rights and opportunities granted to both women and children that, uh, you know, weren't available in other cultures or other religious areas at that time period. That's good, man. I'm a fan of what they're doing. I am impressed about how detailed these episodes have been because so far, like, it seems like there's all these details everywhere, but they're not losing any threads they've introduced. They're following up on them. It's all tying together. There's symbolism on top of symbolism. I'm pretty impressed. So overall, you guys are enjoying this. You'd recommend episode two? Yep. Definitely. Cool. Yeah. Me too. Well, I guess I'm assuming... We lost Nick. He's probably not going to make it back on. He, he said he's frantically trying to find his power cord, but he can't. <laughs> I was going to say, should we wait for him for final thoughts? Or I, I think we're good to move on uh, okay. at this point. 
I, I don't see him being back on in time. So that's all right. Maybe we'll pick up his uh, final thoughts on the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Well, cool. We'll do another episode and release it two weeks from when this one releases. So on tax day, April 15th, our next episode will come out and we'll announce the winner of our drawing for a $25 Visa gift card. You know, somebody who needs some help with groceries or bills right now, times are tight, or hey, you just need to have some fun because it's been a rough year. Need to have a little celebration, pizza or whatever. Enter our drawing, share this podcast. Yeah, yeah, beer, whatever you want, man. Share this podcast with the hashtag Church in a Brewery Podcast and tag a friend in the post and you'll be entered into the drawing. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Yeah, we made it. We will be back in two weeks with episode three. Thanks for listening to Church in a Brewery's review of the Chosen series. If you enjoyed this podcast, help spread the word by leaving a five-star review in the Apple Podcast Store, Stitcher, or your podcast store of choice. That's why they call me Whiteheads, because of what I do to your liver. You can contact the hosts or Church in a Brewery through the Church in a Brewery Facebook page, the Brewery Ministries Instagram page, or through our website, breweryministries.org. Send us your questions, fun comments, whatever you want. It's not enough to say hello. If you're in the Wichita, Kansas area and you want to talk about spiritual things over a craft beer, check out Church in a Brewery. We meet every Monday night inside Augustino Brewing at 7.30 p.m. But those who do the actual fishing are unholy. Foul mouth given to gambling in secret dens and even fishing on Shabbat. The opinions shared in this podcast are the views of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Brewery Ministries Incorporated. Why must I perform? First I perform for Quinters, you taught for God's the soldiers, then for, for the slum dwellers. And this, what, what sort of performance is this? All music and sound clips included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They're included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You.